This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is part two of the season nine special. Before we go on, if my voice sounds different, it's because it's on its way out. I'm battling through this recording, so just bear with me. If it's not as dulcet as normal, if it doesn't help you fall asleep, apologies. I'm in recovery for it. What I'm going to say next is if you haven't already, please check out part one of this two-part episode before listening to this. It provides some much-needed context and sets the scene for this week's episode. I'm getting straight into it as there's a hell of a lot to get through. Part one ended last week with the murder of 20-year-old Jean Jordan in Manchester on October 1st, 1977. If we fast forward three months after that tragic event, it brings us to the timeline involving a 21-year-old mother of two called Yvonne Ann Pearson, who was born in Leeds on February 2nd, 1956. Yvonne lived alone at Woodbury Road in Manningham, an area known as Bradford's Red Light District. Sex work is known to occur primarily on Lum Lane and Manningham Lane. As a means of earning some money and doing her best to make ends meet, Yvonne took up sex work and used Lum Lane to find potential clients. A popular establishment on Lum Lane was the Flying Dutchman Inn, an old pub named after the racehorse that won the Epsom Derby in 1849. The pub opened three years after that victory, but after a series of takeovers, it's now just a shop selling carpets and furniture. Yvonne frequented the Flying Dutchman Inn regularly, and it was there where she headed on the evening of January 21st, 1978. Her young children were left in the capable hands of a teenage babysitter who lived in one of Yvonne's neighbouring houses. Perhaps making the most of her time as a free woman, Yvonne spent the evening in the pub before leaving at around half nine. In just five days' time, she might have been facing some serious jail time as she was due to appear in court on a soliciting charge, her third. The third time was the charm, it seems, so Yvonne was likely worried about being sent to prison after previously receiving two separate soliciting charges. One of Yvonne's friends in the pub recalled her explaining that she was heading out to work on Lum Lane. Unfortunately, she wasn't the only person on the street that night. Sutcliffe had spent the early part of the evening helping his mum and dad move house in Bingley, and afterwards he decided to head for Lum Lane. He only came into contact with Yvonne Pearson after almost crashing his car into another vehicle and been forced to slam on the brakes. Spotting Yvonne and her standout blonde hair, Sutcliffe approached her and she got into his car after agreeing on a price of £5. Driving a short distance up Lum Lane, the pair parked on some unused wasteland behind the old Drummond Mill. Exiting the vehicle, Yvonne was taken by surprise by Sutcliffe, who hit her twice over the head with a hammer that he'd kept hidden under the driver's seat. Another car suddenly came into view, leaving Sutcliffe ultra-concerned about being caught in the act. To keep Yvonne quiet, he attempted to asphyxiate her by filling her mouth with horsehair from an abandoned sofa on the site and holding her nose. Once the other car left the area, Sutcliffe began kicking and jumping on Yvonne until she succumbed to the assault. Her body was hidden under the sofa and would remain undiscovered for two months. 
Despite being reported as missing two days later, nobody had any idea where Yvonne was. Given her line of work, most figured she'd gone on the run to escape her upcoming court date, with one newspaper speculating that she'd disappeared to the city of Wolverhampton in the West Midlands. Yvonne was incorrectly reported as being the Ripper's eighth murder victim when her body was discovered by a teenager riding his bike on March 26th. That was due to him committing another murder in the meantime, which I'll come on to shortly. A copy of the Daily Mirror newspaper dated February 21st, exactly one month after Yvonne's murder, was found under her arms, seemingly intentionally placed there, likely by her killer. Sutcliffe would later deny having returned to the scene to place the paper there. Yvonne was identified by her fingerprints because her poor body and face were simply unrecognisable. Sutcliffe said of Yvonne's murder, I was driving along Lum Lane and saw Yvonne Pearson. She was blonde and was wearing dark trousers. On reflection, it was a very fateful moment for her, me just slowing down as she came along. She stepped straight up to the car and asked me if I wanted business. I told her to get in. The last word she said was, shall we get into the back? As she opened the door, I hit her from behind twice on the head with the hammer. I dragged her by the feet to where there was an old settee. When the car had gone, I kicked her hard to the head and body. I kept reading the papers and I found it incredible to believe that she hadn't been found. I didn't dare go back to where she lay. There was no reason to go back. Doesn't it just show how fucking arrogant the guy was that he felt compelled to read the newspapers to check whether or not his, at that point, anonymous murders had made it into them? He had a 20 grand bounty on his head by the time Yvonne's body was found, which equates to roughly 146 grand in today's money. There had also been over a quarter of a million police interviews, yet still they were no closer to identifying Sutcliffe than they were back in 1975 when he killed Wilma McCann. Police were even doubting that Yvonne's murder was the work of the Ripper, due to it being dissimilar to the rest, i.e. no stab wounds. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I was so shocked when I read some newspapers stating that the police were looking for a copycat murderer. DS Trevor Lapish of West Yorkshire Police said, It could be the Ripper doing it in a different way, but the probability is that we have a completely new man. As I said a bit ago, there was another woman killed by Sutcliffe between Yvonne Pearson's murder and the discovery of her body. Allow me to introduce Elena Ritka, or Helen as she is more commonly known. She was an 18-year-old woman of Jamaican descent who was originally from Bradford, but was living with her twin sister Rita in a flat at Elmwood Avenue in the Highfields area of Huddersfield. The twin sisters and their two siblings were placed into the care system at a young age after their parents' marriage broke down, which only intensified the already strong bond between Rita and Helen. When they reached adulthood, the twins sought about bettering themselves and setting up the rest of their life in the best possible way. Helen secured a job working in a sweet factory, whilst Rita began studying at a local college. Times were hard for Helen and Rita though, which ultimately led them down the path of taking up sex work as an extra form of income. Even though they only began doing so a few weeks before Helen was unfortunate enough to meet Sutcliffe, the sisters had a contingency plan that they felt would prevent either of them coming to harm. They agreed to only accept clients if they were approached at around about the same time, and their respective clients would be informed that their allocated time was 20 minutes. No more no less. The logic was that they would end back at the same spot on Great Northern Street, one of Huddersfield's primary red light roads, at the same time. 
Great Northern Street is well known in Huddersfield. Even as a youngster growing up in the town, I knew of its reputation. The locals used to refer to it as Prozzy Road, which is a delightfully offensive and outdated term, of course. Back in the late 70s, Great Northern Street was the new street on the block, as it were, after most of the red light activity on Venn Street shifted there. Helen and Rita moved to Hoods in roughly November 1977. They did so in an attempt to flee the Bradford hunting grounds of the Ripper. On January 31st, 1978, just 10 days after Yvonne Pearson was unknowingly murdered, the twin sisters headed for Great Northern Street at around half eight with their arms linked. Reaching the street a short while later, it wasn't long before they were being approached by men in a variety of vehicles. As Sutcliffe cruised the area, he first spotted Rita, but was disappointed to learn that she was waiting for a client. Driving a little further down the road, he spotted Helen and picked her up. The car headed for a secluded spot inside Garrard's timber yard at the end of Great Northern Street, just where it meets Hill House Lane. Here's why the attack on Helen is considered different. Sutcliffe, for the first time, found himself becoming aroused at the prospect of having sex with her. Feeling a loss of control, he exited the vehicle. He then retrieved a hammer that he'd hidden and swung it at Helen. That initial strike only grazed her head, and seeing as her back was turned, she assumed he'd slapped her rather than hit her with a hammer. In a bid to ensure her safety, Helen then said, There is no need for that. You don't even have to pay. Sutcliffe soon struck Helen again with the hammer, connecting with each blow as he'd intended to first time round. Incapacitated and flawed, Helen was still alive at that point, despite the brutal attack. Surveying his surroundings, Sutcliffe spotted a couple of taxi drivers engaged in conversation with one another nearby. Their respective taxis were pointed directly at them. Dragging Helen to a more isolated part of the timber yard, Sutcliffe proceeded to rape her something he had not done to any of the women he'd previously killed or would go on to kill. Not that we know of anyway. Further hammer blows came after that, followed by several stabs with a knife that Sutcliffe had taken from his kitchen drawer earlier in the day. He would wipe it clean and return it to the drawer after killing Helen. Her body was hidden behind some bushes in the yard close to a wall and behind a stack of timber. Rita was immediately concerned upon her return to Great Northern Street after being away for 20 minutes, but given her fear of repercussions from the police for soliciting, she did not inform them that Helen was missing until three days had passed. Workers at the yard spotted some black knickers the following day, as well as what appeared to be a bloodstain in the mud, but given the yard's location and the reputation of the street, they barely raised an eyebrow. Such sights were the norm on the morning shift as the yard was known to be where many men took sex workers after the sun went down. As police officers began searching Great Northern Street on February 3rd after Rita raised their concerns, Garrod's timber yard was one of the first places they looked. With tracker dogs out in full force, barely 10 minutes went by before Helen's body was found behind the pile of timber. Her post-mortem revealed a cause of death as being from hammer blows to the head combined with several stab wounds to her body many of which appeared to have been stabbed more than once. Sutcliffe had this to say about Helen. I did not know the Huddersfield red light area, but one day I had to make a delivery in Huddersfield in the afternoon. I noticed a few girls plying for trade near the market area. Two or three nights later, I decided to pay them a visit. The urge inside me to kill girls was now practically uncontrollable. I picked up a hammer from under my seat and I hit a furious blow to Helen's head, which knocked her down. 
I took my knife from my pocket and plunged it into her ribs and again into her heart. I did this five or six times. The operation had taken about half an hour. The following is a poem written by Helen's twin sister Rita, a lover of poetry, at the end of an article in which George Oldfield was appealing to the wives and girlfriends of impotent men to come forwards. The logic was down to three psychiatrists agreeing that the Ripper was an impotent man and that his insatiable lust for sex had been replaced by an equal lust for bloodshed. Given what he did to Helen, that doesn't ring true, like much of the stuff the police thought they knew about the Ripper. Here's the poem. I feel the torment. I feel the pain. I feel the sorrow of never meeting again. Oh God, who takes the blame? In innocence she lived. In innocence she cried. In innocence she walked the street simply to survive. In innocence she died. To you who took her life, let no one else suffer. I miss you, Helen. Let's talk about Wearside Jack now. Who is Wearside Jack? He's the pseudonym of one John Samuel Humble, a man from Sunderland who felt that it would be a good idea to pretend to be the Yorkshire Ripper in the middle of his killing spree. Between March 1st, 1978 and June 30th, 1979, Humble sent three letters and an audio tape, each of which claimed to have been sent by the Ripper. The letters prompted the police to acquire handwriting samples from people of interest, including one Peter Sutcliffe, who was ruled out on multiple occasions as his handwriting didn't match the letter. Clearly it didn't match as he didn't write the bloody things, but as I said earlier, hindsight is a wonderful thing. I won't go on about Humble too much, but I will refer to his letters on tape as the story progresses. His identity was finally revealed in the mid-2000s after his DNA, taken after committing a minor offence, matched the saliva from one of the envelopes the letters were sent in. He received an eight-year jail sentence for his crimes after being charged with four counts of perverting the course of justice, but he only served four. Given Sutcliffe went on to kill three more women after the release of what will forever be known as the Wearside Jack tape, I think he can consider himself lucky that he received such a lenient sentence. John Humble died of heart failure on August 20th, 2019 at his South Shields home after a long battle with alcoholism. He was 63 years old. The first hoax letter was addressed to Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield and Postmark Sunderland with the date March 8th, 1978. That fits into our timeline after Yvonne Pearson and Helen Ritka were murdered, but before Yvonne's body was found. It read, Dear Sir, I am sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. I've been dubbed a maniac by the press, but not by you. You call me clever, and I am. You and your mates haven't a clue. That photo in the paper gave me fits, and that bit about killing myself? No chance. I've got things to do. My purpose to rid the streets of them sluts. My one regret is that young lassie MacDonald. Did not know cause changed routine that night. Up to number eight now. You say seven, but remember Preston 75. Get about, you know. You were right, I travel a bit. You probably look for me in Sunderland. Don't bother. I am not daft. Just posted a letter there on one of my trips. Not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham and other places. Warn whores to keep off streets because I feel it coming on again. Sorry about young lassie. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again later. I'm not sure last one really deserved it. Whores getting younger each time. Old slut next time, I hope. Huddersfield never again. Too small. Close call, last one. 
The second letter was again postmarked Sunderland with the date March 13th, 1978. Addressed to the editor of the Daily Mirror in Manchester, it read, Dear Sir, I have already written to Chief Constable George Oldfield, a man I respect concerning the recent Ripper murders. I told him, and I am telling you to warn them whores I will strike again and soon when the heat cools off. About the McDonald lassie, I didn't know she was decent and I am sorry I changed my routine that night. Up to murder eight now, you say seven, but remember, Preston 75. Easy picking them up, don't even have to try. You think they'll learn, but they don't. Most are young lasses. Next time, try older one, I hope. Police haven't a clue yet and I don't leave any. I am very clever and don't look for me up there in Sunderland because I not stupid. Just pass through the place. Not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham. A lot of this content is obviously the same. I appreciate that. Can't walk the streets for them whores. Can't forget, warn them. I feel it coming on again. If I get a chance, sorry about Lassie. I didn't know. Yours respectfully, Jack the Ripper. Might write again after another week gone by. Maybe Liverpool or even Manchester again. Too hot here in Yorkshire. Bye. I have given advance warning, so it's yours and their fault. Hard to read them letters if you're trying to read it word for word. I'll discuss the third letter and audio tape later because it's now time for me to introduce Vera Evelyn Millward, a 40-year-old woman who was, according to one source, born in Madrid, Spain. Known affectionately to those close to her as V, Vera was a Manchester-based sex worker that also went by the names Anne Brown and Mary Barton. A mum of seven, Vera worked in the areas of Mossside and Hume in the city, settling in a council flat on Greenham Avenue in the latter. Vera had had a tough life, one that saw her suffering from a multitude of health problems, including a series of three major medical operations that occurred between 1976 and 1977. She only had one lung, so breathing, something we all take for granted, was no doubt something she struggled with continuously. To top it off, Vera had chronic stomach pains. She must have been in agony 24-7. Living with Vera was her boyfriend, and it was he whom she placed in charge of the children on the evening of May 16th, 1978. At 10pm, she told him she was just nipping out to get some ciggies, but her boyfriend knew what she actually meant by that. Vera was heading out to work. It was a Tuesday, which meant that one of Vera's regulars would be collecting her at any moment. For reasons unknown, he didn't show, which left Vera wandering the streets in the hope of finding someone else. That someone else, sadly, was Peter Sutcliffe. Once inside his car, Vera was driven to a car park at Manchester Royal Infirmary, a couple of miles away from a flat. As they both got out, Sutcliffe attacked Vera with a hammer, striking her on the head with three blows. By that point, having already succumbed to her injuries, Vera's body was subjected to a series of stabs from Sutcliffe's knife after being dragged over to a fence at the edge of the car park. A post-mortem later confirmed that Vera's cause of death was blows to the head with a blunt instrument. Her body was found at 8am the next morning by some gardeners who'd been contracted to do some work at the hospital. Her murder was linked to the Ripper series after tyre track impressions were found and casts were made of them. They matched those found at Irene Richardson and Marilyn Moore's murder sites. I've not mentioned Marilyn yet, but she will come up again later. Here's what Sutcliffe had to say about the murder in his confession. The urge inside me still diminished my actions when it came to the fore. The next time I felt this way, I paid another visit to Manchester one evening, a few months after Ritka. I saw a woman obviously wanting to be picked up. She told me where to drive and I followed her directions, which led us into a hospital grounds. 
I picked my hammer up from under the seat and as she was opening the rear door, I hit her on the head. She was on her hands and knees when I hit her again at least once. I took out my knife, pulled her clothes up and slashed her stomach either vertical or diagonal. It opened up her stomach. Then I rolled her over onto her stomach and left her lying there. One last point about Vera Millward is that she was the last of Sutcliffe's murder victims to have been a sex worker. The papers at the time were still sticking with his victims all being sex workers, with the exception of Jim MacDonald, and even though nine innocent women had died, it still felt as if their murders were being downplayed. In the media, at least, anyway. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The third and final Wearside Jack hoax letter was again postmarked Sunderland with the date March 23rd, 1979. Addressed to George Oldfield, it read, Dear Officer, sorry I haven't written, about a year to be exact, but I haven't been up north for quite a while. I wasn't kidding the last time I wrote saying the hall would be older this time and maybe I'd strike in Manchester for a change. You should have took heed. That bit about her being in hospital. Funny the lady mentioned something about being in hospital before I stopped her whoring ways. The lady won't worry about hospitals now, will she? I bet you'd be wondering how come I haven't been to work for ages. Well, I would have been if it hadn't been for your cursed coppers. I had the lady just where I wanted her and was about to strike when one of your cursing police cars stopped right outside the lane. He must have been a dumb copper because he didn't say anything. He didn't know how close he was to catching me. Tell you the truth, I thought I was collared. The lady said don't worry about the coppers. Little did she know that bloody copper saved her neck. That was last month, so I don't know when I will be back on the job, but I know it won't be Chapel Town. Too bloody hot there. Maybe Bradford's Manningham. Might write again if up north. Jack the Ripper. P.S. Did you get letter I sent to Daily Mirror in Manchester? Remember, it was just a member of the public sending these letters. Just some guy off the street. A 19-year-old woman called Josephine Ann Whittaker is who I'd like to introduce next. Born in Halifax, West Yorkshire on December 19th, 1959, Josephine lived at Ivy Street with her mum Avril, her two younger brothers, 15-year-old Michael and 13-year-old David, as well as her stepdad. For a living, Josephine worked as a clerk at Halifax Building Society, known in modern times as simply Halifax, and had absolutely no connection with sex work, sex workers or so-called red light districts. This is the first time that the town of Halifax has been mentioned in this story and that's because Sutcliffe felt the need to expand his territory given the large police presence in Leeds, Manchester and Huddersfield. On April 4th, 1979, Josephine paid a visit to her grandparents, Tom and Mary Priestley, who lived a mile or two away on Huddersfield Road. Ever so proud of her job and wanting to impress her grandparents, Josephine made the visit to show them her brand new silver watch that she'd just bought for 60 quid just short of 400 quid today. It was a later than planned stay because Mary didn't get back home from her church party over the road until it was almost well into the evening. Declining the offer to stay the night, Josephine explained that she had work the next day and had better get herself home. She also reportedly wore contacts and the cases for them were back at her house, so she had two genuinely good reasons to head back. After saying her goodbyes to her beloved grandparents, who were so proud of the bright young woman they called their granddaughter, Josephine left at around 11.40pm and headed for Savile Park. Crossing the playing fields there would significantly cut down her journey time. Sutcliffe just so happened to be cruising the area at the same time and spotted her walking in the dark on her own. On his person was a hammer and a screwdriver. 
Catching up to her, he offered to walk her home and even joked about how nobody knew who they could trust these days. When they got halfway across the field, Sutcliffe suddenly stopped in his tracks and pretended to be attempting to decipher a clock tower in the distance. What he was in fact doing was grabbing his hammer. A few moments later, he struck Josephine on the back of the head with it. He then stabbed her a total of 27 times with the screwdriver before sexually assaulting her with it. He would later claim that he firmly believed Josephine was a sex worker, but he likely only said that in an attempt to lessen his crimes, given how women in that line of work were viewed at the time. Josephine's body was discovered the next morning after an early morning bus passenger spotted a strange bundle in the middle of the field. Jean Markham was waiting for a bus to arrive at Savile Park Road when she spotted it and ventured over to investigate further. She notified the police after realising she had found the body of a woman. Sutcliffe was once again interviewed by police who had a photograph of his boot print left at the scene of Josephine's murder and he was wearing the same boots whilst being interviewed. He said, I stayed dead calm and as I got into the wagon I realised I was standing on the steps which were mesh and they could look up and see for themselves that I was wearing those boots but they didn't. They couldn't see what were in front of their own eyes. Here's what he had to say about the murder of Josephine. I'd been cruising around the town centre and seen no. I drove towards home and saw this girl in the park. I believed she was a prostitute. What else would she be doing there at that time of night? I parked the car and ran softly up behind her to catch her up. I knew the voices were protecting me. They inspired me to ask her the time to get her to turn her head away from me. I wanted her to turn the back of her head to me for a moment. I had a watch on myself, but the voices in my head told me she wouldn't notice that. In mid-June 1979, an envelope addressed to George Oldfield was received that contained a cassette tape. On it was the following recording. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no look catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. Good Lord. You are no near catching me now. Than four years ago when I started. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. They can't be much good, can they? The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapeltown when I was disturbed. I warned you in March that I'd strike again. Sorry it wasn't Bradford. I'm not quite sure when I'll strike again. But it will be definitely sometime this year. I'm not sure where. Maybe Manchester. I like it there. There's plenty of them knocking about. They never learn, do they, George? I bet you've warned them, but they never listen. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Chuck the Ripper. That tape was believed to be from the Ripper, and given his distinctive northeast accent, the search for him made its way up to Sunderland, leaving Sutcliffe to carry on as he liked back in Yorkshire. It was a tape that was played throughout nightclubs in West Yorkshire. My mum recalled being in Johnny's, one of Huddersfield's most legendary nightclubs one evening, when the police suddenly rocked up. The lights were turned on, the music was stopped, and that tape was played out to the club's patrons. Imagine hearing that knowing you still have to get home at the end of the night. Now I've already touched upon the fact Sutcliffe went on to kill three more innocent women after the release of the hoax tape, so the next person I'm going to introduce to you is 20-year-old Barbara Janine Leach, who was originally from Kettering in Northamptonshire. Barbara, who was known as Babs by those close to her, was the daughter of David and Beryl Leach, as well as being the sister of Graham Leach. 
As a child growing up in Kettering, Barbara lived at Hazel Road, close to the town centre, and attended both Henry Gotch Grammar and Southfield Girls, which are primary and secondary schools respectively. Moving 140 miles north to study social psychology at Bradford University, Barbara lived with some of her fellow students at lodgings on Grove Terrace. To earn money between terms when she wasn't studying, she worked at a handbag manufacturer's in Desborough, a town close to Kettering. Described as a clever, endearing and incredibly friendly woman, Barbara was a social butterfly. She was often out drinking with her uni mates and that's exactly what she was doing on the evening of September 1st, 1979. Barbara's third and final term was just about to start at the uni, so her friends and her were spending the night at the Manville Arms on Great Horton Road. The landlord at the Manville Arms back then was Roy Evans, and it was Roy who sought help from the students when it came to the pub's 11pm closing time. He asked them to assist with collecting all the empty glasses whilst he gave the place a quick once-over. As a reward, they were allowed a couple more drinks after the bar closed. Eventually leaving the pub as a group at around quarter to one in the morning, the students headed for their lodgings, but Barbara, who was a keen late-night walker, wanted to get some fresh air. Typically, she would be joined by one of her friends on such a walk, but on this occasion, no one else fancied it. Even so, Barbara decided that she did and headed out on her own. Within ten minutes or so, she was spotted by Sutcliffe, who, as always, just so happened to be in the area. Driving past her and pulling his car onto the curb, he got out and waited for Barbara to pass him before taking her by surprise and striking her once on the back of the head with a hammer. He then proceeded to stab Barbara eight times using the same screwdriver he'd used to murder Josephine Whittaker. Barbara's body was hidden in the backyard of number 13 Ash Grove, a mere few hundred yards from where she'd split up from her friends. The police were informed of Barbara's disappearance on the evening of September 2nd and by late afternoon the following day, her body had been discovered where Sutcliffe had left it. Here's what he had to say about Barbara's murder. My urge to kill remained strong and was totally out of my control. I had the urge which was in me and I went to look for a victim. It was late so I drove straight into town and then found myself going up by the university. I saw a girl. She was walking up the road on my left. I drove past her, turned left into a wide street and stopped on the near side. She carried on walking past the car. I had my hammer out and I think I had my big screwdriver with me. When she reached an entrance yard to a house, I hit her on the head with the hammer. She fell down. She was moaning. I remember that I stabbed Barbara with the screwdriver, the same one as Whittaker, and I remember that I put her in the dustbin area and covered her up with something. That something was a carpet if you are wondering. Sutcliffe was interviewed on October 23rd regarding this murder. It was the sixth time he'd been interviewed in connection with the Ripper inquiry. As always, Sonia bailed him out by insisting he was at home with her, and despite taking another handwriting sample, he was ruled out as a suspect because it obviously didn't match John Humble's. Following Sutcliffe's eventual arrest, it came to light that he had been interviewed by police officers on nine separate occasions in connection with the Ripper murders. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Marguerite Walls is the next person I'm going to introduce to you. A 47-year-old living in Farsley, a town in the city of Leeds, Marguerite appears to have originally grown up in Worcester, as my research indicates that's where her parents lived. I may be wrong, but it's an educated guess that she was from there. Working as a civil servant at the Department of Education and Science office in Pudze, another town in the city of Leeds, Marguerite was a rather private person. Her colleagues didn't really know much about her, as she gave very little away. I know that she enjoyed to keep fit, 
something she achieved by going on long walks whenever possible, including to and from work every day. In around 1977, she was living in Leicester and had a boyfriend there, but since moving to Farsley, it appears as though that relationship ended. Marguerite had a two-week holiday planned in August 1980, with her leave due to begin on August 21st. To earn some extra cash for her jollies, she regularly stayed late at her office and pledged it as overtime. That's what she did on the evening of August 20th, the day before she was due to go away. The rough time Marguerite left the office was between half nine and half ten. As always, she was planning on walking home. The office was located just half a mile away from her detached house in Farsley. As she made her way home, Sutcliffe spotted her as he was driving through the town, headed for the red light area of Chapeltown. Driving past Marguerite, he pulled over and waited for her to walk past the car. As she did, he took her by surprise from behind by attacking her with a hammer. In an effort to disassociate this murder from the others in the Ripper case, Sutcliffe did not stab Marguerite after striking her several times on the head with the hammer. Instead, he used some rope to strangle her to death. He then dragged her body and dumped it in the back garden of a huge house on New Street in Farsley, which was owned by local magistrate Peter Hainsworth. She was discovered the following day by gardeners working at the property. Because of the use of a ligature, the police firmly believed that Marguerite was murdered by someone other than the Ripper. His plan had worked. Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson said, At this stage my feelings are that it is probably not connected. We do not believe this is the work of the Yorkshire Ripper, but I am still keeping my options open. The Ripper was still classified as being dormant. Sutcliffe said of that murder, I was on my way to Leeds with a view to killing a prostitute when I saw that this woman was walking towards me at a distance of about 60 yards. She disappeared around a corner on my left, so I slowed down and turned into this particular road. I was already in some kind of a rage and it was just unfortunate for her that she was where she was at the time. Having caught up with her, I let her have it with a hammer. I hit her on the head. There was a voice inside my head saying, Kill. 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 I didn't have a knife on me this time, but I had a length of cord which I strangled her with. It's worth noting that I could barely find any newspaper articles that mention Marguerite by name. She was left unnamed in most of them, with the likely reason being that she was not considered to have been murdered by the Ripper. Finally, I'd like to introduce 20-year-old Jacqueline Hill, a woman born and bred in the northeast town of Ormsby, but who lived in student halls at Upton Court on Alma Road in Headingley, Leeds. Now, when I say Jacqueline lived a literal 10-minute walk away from my house, I'm probably understating just how close that road is to me. I was so shocked when researching Jacqueline's story at just how close to home what happened to her was because I've driven up that road umpteen times, even as recently as last week. It offers a cheeky little shortcut to avoid the lights on Otley Road when you want to turn right heading towards Grove Lane via Shaw Lane. Jacqueline was in the city studying English at the University of Leeds and had aspirations of becoming a probation officer. A kind and loving woman, Jacqueline gave up most of her spare time to give back to the community. She worked as a Sunday school teacher at the weekend and also volunteered at summer camps aimed at helping children from more deprived areas to achieve their Duke of Edinburgh awards. She loved working with and helping to look after children and planned to start a family of her own with her boyfriend Ian Tanfield, a junior technician in the RAF. They weren't engaged but getting married was definitely in their future plans. When Ian was based at RAF Kinloss in Murray, northeastern Scotland, he used to travel 350 miles down to Headingley to spend the weekend with Jacqueline. 
That's a minimum of seven hours driving each way, assuming he drove. In anticipation of his visits, Jacqueline would study as hard as she could throughout the week so that her weekends were kept open. Having so many friends, it's perhaps not surprising to hear that she regularly went out with her fellow pupils and housemates. Headingley, or Headers as we call it, is known for being a heavy student area given its close proximity to both the University of Leeds and Leeds Beckett University, which some still refer to as Leeds Met. On the evening of November 17th, 1980, Jacqueline attended a probation officer's seminar in Leeds City Centre. Arriving home by bus, it stopped outside the Arndale Centre in the middle of Headingley at 9.23pm. Getting off the bus and heading for Alma Road, Jacqueline had no idea that Sutcliffe was parked in his car and had spotted her. As he had done previously, Sutcliffe started the car and drove past Jacqueline as she made her way home. She was attacked just a hundred or so yards from her lodgings. Striking her on the head with a hammer, Sutcliffe had to improvise quickly as another woman began walking down Alma Road. Jacqueline was dragged onto some land behind the Arndale Centre's car park where she was stabbed repeatedly with a screwdriver, including once in her eye. The attack was almost identical to the attack he made on a woman called Upadhya Bandara seven weeks earlier, only she managed to survive. I'll speak more about Upadhya and some other women shortly. At around 10pm the same evening, another student found Jacqueline's handbag. Not immediately concerned, the student took the bag back to his lodgings where he discussed it with his housemates. After spotting what appeared to be blood on the bag, the police were informed a couple of hours after it was first discovered. Even so, the police failed to find Jacqueline's body that evening. It wasn't until a member of the public spotted her body the following morning that she was found. Sutcliffe said in his confession, I believed she was soliciting. I'm sure I saw her trying to stop two cars at the other side of the road. I drove just past her and parked in the near side about five or six yards up and waited for her to pass. I got out of the car and followed about three yards behind her. I took my hammer out of my pocket and struck her a blow on the head. By this time, I was again in a world of my own, out of touch with reality. I think I hit her once again, or maybe twice, on the head. I had a screwdriver on me. I stabbed her in her lungs. I jabbed the screwdriver into her eye, but they stayed open, and I felt worse than ever. I think she was dead when I left. Contrary to what he thought, Jacqueline was thought to have been alive when Sutcliffe left the area, with her death coming at closer to midnight based on her post-mortem results. In theory, had the handbag been handed into the police sooner, Jacqueline may have been found and found alive. However, given the fact the police didn't find her anywhere that night, I think we can rule out that theory. The student who found her handbag undoubtedly feels some form of guilt or remorse, but personally, I don't think he should. Jacqueline Hill was the last person murdered by Sutcliffe that we know of, but even so, many senior police officers within West Yorkshire Police believe the real killer was from Wearside rather than Yorkshire. The letters and audio tape were still believed to have come from the real killer. I mentioned Upadhya Bandara a few moments ago and how she survived an attack eerily similar to the one on Jacqueline Hill. There are a few other survivors to mention. Marilyn Moore, a 25-year-old sex worker, was attacked by Sutcliffe on December 14, 1977 in Chapeltown, Leeds, around 200 yards from the playing fields where Wilma McCann was murdered in October 1975. That attack occurred two months after Jean Jordan's murder and a month before Yvonne Pearson's. Anne Rooney was a 22-year-old student attacked by Sutcliffe on March 2nd, 1979 in Horsforth, Leeds. That attack occurred 10 months after Vera Millward's murder and a month before Josephine Whitaker's murder. 
and Teresa Sykes, a 16-year-old girl who was attacked by Sutcliffe on November 5, 1980 in Huddersfield. That attack occurred two months after the attempted murder of Apadhya Bandara and 12 days before Jacqueline Hill's murder. Sutcliffe was eventually taken into custody on suspicion of theft after he was stopped by patrol officers in Sheffield on January 2nd, 1981. In the car with him was Olivia Rivers, a convicted sex worker and the subject of a suspended sentence. When asked if he owned the vehicle, a Rover saloon, Sutcliffe said yes, but when the plates were run, they matched with another car, a Skoda. It was because of the false plates that he was taken into custody and the rest, as they say, is history. Isn't it ridiculous how he was finally caught over such a trivial thing as that when he'd already been interviewed on multiple occasions in connection with the Ripper murders? Before being taken into custody that evening, Sutcliffe was allowed to walk away from the vehicle to have a piss, but that was just a ploy to rid himself of a hammer and a knife, which were later recovered from the scene by Sergeant Robert Ring, one of the arresting officers. He thought he'd heard a noise coming from where Sutcliffe had gone, and something didn't quite sit right with him. Sutcliffe had also hidden another knife in one of the police station toilets. He soon admitted to having done so, and it was quickly found. As the questioning progressed into its second day, Sutcliffe suddenly admitted that he was the man they referred to as the Yorkshire Ripper. He then proceeded to confess to 12 of the 13 murders over a period of almost 16 hours. The 13th murder he initially refused to confess to was Marguerite Walls. He insisted that strangulation was not his MO. His murder trial began at the Old Bailey on April 29th that year, with Mr Justice Borum overseeing the proceedings. Sutcliffe faced 13 murder charges in respect of Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Patricia Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Jean Jordan, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Ritka, Vera Millward, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach, Marguerite Walls and Jacqueline Hill. He also faced seven attempted murder charges in respect of Anna Rogulski, Olive Smelt, Marcella Claxton, Maureen Long, Marilyn Moore, Upadhya Bandara and Teresa Sykes. Another woman who claimed to have been attacked by Sutcliffe and survived is Maureen Lee, better known as Mo. Back when she was an art student in Leeds, Mo was attacked on October 25th, 1980 by a man with a hammer. The attack took place close to where Upadhya Bandara was attacked and where Jacqueline Hill was murdered. No charges were ever brought before Sutcliffe regarding Mo Lee. In a 1981 report by Sir Lawrence Byford, which was only made available to the public in 2006, it surmised that Sutcliffe was likely responsible for as many as 13 other offences, with some men even claiming to have been attacked by him. I've linked the Byford report in my show notes and I highly recommend you give it a read if you want to learn more about this case. Sutcliffe pleaded not guilty regarding the 13 murder charges. Instead, he pleaded guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. He did, however, plead guilty to all seven attempted murder charges. The jury retired for just under six hours and returned with a 10-2 majority verdict of guilty to 13 counts of murder on May 22, 1981. For each of his 20 charges, Sutcliffe received a life sentence and his minimum tariff was set at 30 years. Initially sent to HMP Parkhurst on the Isle of Wight, Sutcliffe was transferred to Broadmoor three years later after being diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He claimed that God had told him to kill sex workers. During his time in Parkhurst and Broadmoor, he was attacked by other inmates on four separate occasions. 
One attack occurred in Parkhurst in 1983, and the other three occurred in Broadmoor in 1996, 1997 and 2007 respectively. His sentence was changed to a whole life order in 2010 after he attempted to get his minimum term lowered. That decision was approved by the Court of Appeal. He finally moved back to the prison system in 2016 after being deemed fit enough to be placed there. A health tribunal had found he no longer needed treatment for any mental disorder. On November 13th, 2020, Peter Sutcliffe died at the University Hospital of North Durham after catching COVID-19. He was in extremely poor health, having suffered a heart attack only two weeks prior and reportedly refused any treatment for his illnesses. And that concludes this end of season special focusing on the forgotten 13 innocent women murdered by the Yorkshire Ripper. Thanks again Alfie Turton and Taylor for suggesting the case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I appreciate it's far longer than my usual bite-sized content. I hate doing two parts over two weeks, but this is a story I've been putting off covering for a while. I just hope it's done the women I've discussed justice. If you're listening on Spotify, there's a section at the bottom of the episode where you can let me know your thoughts. I'm not going to bother reading any reviews this week. I've kept you for long enough. If you've made it this far and you're still listening, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's back to normal next week with the start of season 10 and more bite-sized episodes. Keep sending me your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. As and when I cover the case, you will get a shout-out just like Alfie and Taylor have. And that does it. I'm absolutely wiped out after this absolute mammoth two-parter. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Until next time. Cheerio! Cheerio!